Hello and welcome to episode number 252 of the Armin Show podcast. We get the wonderful guests on this show. Here we have author of How the Brain Lost Its Mind. This wonderful book, I don't know if it'll show because of the green screen, nope. But Sex, Hysteria, and the Riddle of Mental Illness by Dr. Alan Ropper and Brian David Burrell. Dr. Alan Ropper, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for the interest in the book. It is wonderful. It has a cover that usually makes me think of like political books when it's like red and black and like it'll show something like there's some movement being made, but it's a different category. Now, the first thing that came to mind when I saw the book is, well, when I started reading it, why the focus on, it's mostly focused on syphilis as a disease. Tell us about syphilis and why you chose to focus on that specifically, and then we'll go back into your career. Terrific. Thank you. Well, uh, the reason I focused on syphilis is because I've always been fascinated by how it affects the nervous system and the brain in particular. And it goes back, if you'll allow me, to the 1970s when I was training in neurology. Uh, while today it would seem incomprehensible, one of our jobs as neurology residents at the Mass General Hospital was to run what was called the Lewis Clinic, L-U-E-S, which is a word that's used for syphilis. And uh, every other Tuesday morning, we had to line up all the patients who were being treated for neurosyphilis, put them in little cubicles in this long brick building where the neurology clinic was, and do spinal taps to check if the penicillin was working. So I was one of the last people to actually come in close proximity to neurosyphilis. It's had a huge recurrence now, but it utterly fascinated me. Um, at the same time, it was the waning days of psychoanalysis. And in Boston in particular, uh, Freudian psychoanalysis had a complete grip on academic psychiatry. And uh, the whole idea that Freud might be onto something juxtaposed with this organic illness of the brain that produced insanity, paranoia, depression, delusions, hallucinations, just captivated me. So I knew I was going to write this book now for 40 years. That's why I'm doing it. By juxtaposing on one end, neurosyphilis, and particularly general paresis of the insane, which is an organic disease that produces mental illness, and hysteria, which seems to be a mind illness, um, it, it's possible to trace the origins of our ideas about mental illness. That's why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. I noticed that in the book, you had the Freud quote where he said something like, civilization is based on being able to limit your own instincts as a person and those who cannot, we call that a disorder or something like that. Is that what civilization is built on? <laughs> I don't know, but it is in part, I'll tell you, um, civilization is built on collective psychology. And unfortunately, I think that everything we know about individual psychology and try to understand about human behavior goes out the window when it comes to group behavior. So there is a need, of course, to suppress uh, deeply instinctive and primal behavior or else it's anarchy. Uh, and by the way, in neurosyphilis, that's the first thing to go. The idea that you're monitoring your own mental state and you know what's real and unreal, just like schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. I thought about this collective consciousness thing that most of the things we call, let's say, notability in society is just you're in the minds of many people that's notability well certainly now that's the case because it's so easy to 
uh, have a, a, a new kind of collective mind, which is out there, you know, on the web. Uh, and that, that's a very fascinating thing, too, because, of course, if you follow the delusional and uh, hallucinatory material in schizophrenics, at one time it was spirits, uh, one time it was the radio, at one time it's the television, and now it's the Internet is inserting thoughts into my mind. It's, very, it's really fascinating. That's true. I wonder sometimes those who work with minds directly as you have or know of, if you see people differently, sometimes I see people as a mind and then a body that's with that mind. Well, it's a very interesting point, actually, and it's pretty deep because, um, you know, when you think about a couple of comparisons, it seems possible to teach animals, for example, an enormous number of words, identify things. There was just an article about this dog in Norway that can identify 50 of his toys. There's the famous uh, parrot, Alex, that Irene Pepperberg trained to actually have a lot of human qualities, but it's only us who think about our minds and have an idea that other people have a mind. That's really unique. And again, in neurosyphilis, that's lost. So in fact, it's a type of mental illness. What is a mental illness as opposed to a disorder? That's partly what the book is about. Mm -hmm. That's connected, I believe, to theory of mind that develops around age five, six, seven. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Wonderful. Theory of mind, absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. Now, you are currently you're at the location. You're at the New England Journal of Medicine doing that's correct. editing. You're mm -hmm. also a professor at Harvard. Can you take us through your path from where you started to how you got to where you are right now? Uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, I... I don't, I don't know how interesting it is, but maybe it is. So uh, when I went to medical school in the 1970s, way before you were born. Mm -hmm. um, I was born in the 80s. Okay. All right. Close enough. Yeah. Uh, the, the romantic notion was that the big doctor, the big contribution was in these very sophisticated uh, internists, internal medicine. It's sort of exploded now. That sort of bled over into specialties. And... Uh, at my medical school at Cornell in New York at the time, uh, the very best students were going into cardiology. I was, thought it was fascinating, but I then did a rotation at the Mayo Clinic with Valentin Fuster, who's a big name brand. He's currently at Mount Sinai, terrific guy. And I saw, and he told me that cardiology was going to become testing. First it was echoes, then it was going to be angios, and the clinical skill set might be diminished in importance. But I saw in neurology the ability to make value added through your own um, skills. The exam, the history was very synthetic. So I fell in love with it. And in the middle of my uh, medical residency, because I did internal medicine at UCSF, I, I, was gonna, I said I was going to go into neurology. And I was lucky enough to get a residency at the Mass General Hospital under the tutelage of Raymond D. Adams, who probably was... Uh, the most iconic neurologist of the 20th century and absolutely moved the field forward with critical neuropathology, which was the neuroscience of its time. So that's how I got into neurology and I never regretted it. It's completely fascinating every day. Has in part to do with what you alluded to earlier and that is that mind comes out of the brain without a doubt. You can't have a mind without a brain. But I was never sure that if you understood everything about the brain, 
you would understand very much about the mind. And that also, of course, led me to write this book. So um, I was the Mass General for a while, and I uh, am credited, although I don't want to sound inflated, with uh, being one of the people who started the field of neurological intensive care uh, with some colleagues. We wrote the first textbook on it. We gave the first course on it. Um, and we opened one of the first neuro ICUs in the country. I then moved to Tufts and St. Elizabeth's. I was the chairman for uh, a decade and then went to the Brigham where my clinical appointment is, Brigham and Women's Hospital. But my full-time job at the moment is as one of the deputy editors of the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm -hmm. One thing about neurological intensive care, how did that change the field? Does that mean that there's like a section in hospitals for that? Or what does that mean? Yes, there is. I mean, uh, when I started, it was really just a glorified post-operative ward for neurosurgical cases, but slowly became clear that people with um, intracerebral hemorrhages, status epilepticus, Guillain-Barre syndrome, where I wrote a monograph, myasthenia gravis, probably should be taken care of at least predominantly by neurologists whereas before they'd been taken care of by anesthesiologists and the respiratory failure was everything. So we started this new idea of neuro ICU. Now there are hundreds or more in the United States and many more abroad. And it's a subspecialty of neurology that has its own UCNS certification. Mm -hmm. That's a cool thing. Everything has to start from someone's mind and then transfer out to be applicable elsewhere. Yeah, but I'll tell you, Armin, there's a lot of luck involved. Everybody would like to think that if you can sort of understand the trajectory of successful ventures mm -hmm. that you can uh, simulate them and emulate those people. Uh, I owe a lot to people like Ray Adams and many, many others who uh, were there. And then it's a matter of being at the right place at the right time. I tell my residents this all the time. Uh, everything we touched in the 1980s in neuro IC was golden. It was a paper. You could just have 100 cases. People were fascinated. Uh, now, of course, I'm seeing papers that are mainly randomized controlled trials that are moving the field forward, but at the expense at times of the clinical skill set. Mm -hmm. I noticed that in every field, there's moments, and that moment represents the biggest need at that time, and then later on, there's a moment for something else, and that earlier moment, you can't recreate it. You're absolutely right, and uh, that's why I mean luck. I mean, I was there, and I had the right uh, mentors even though it doesn't mean the same thing that mentorship means now. I mean, these were people who were supportive, but didn't direct anything. Um, and I had great colleagues, but uh, I, I recognize that fully. And uh, anybody who underestimates this synchronicity and luck part, man, they're just headed for heartbreak. Mm -hmm. First thing that comes to mind is Bill Gates when he talked about, like, I had computer time when other people didn't have computer time and I was in the right moment. That's yeah. right. Yeah. There's always that key moment. Yeah. And yet the enjoyment of what you're doing is still, I think, the primary thing. I mean, you've got to find something that really resonates with you and uh, be fortunate enough. Neurology is great, though. I wrote another book called Reaching Down the Rabbit Hole that was um, uh, numerically very successful. I don't know how this book is going to do yet. Uh, and it really was just um, my life as a neurologist. And people love stories, but it was meant to stimulate interest in this incredibly fascinating field of neurology and neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Now, the New England Journal of Medicine is one of the top journals in science that exists. What is it like being an editor for that journal? And what is a lot of what you do for that journal? 
you know, um, people ask me all the time because it seems like a digression from the 40 years of clinical neurology that I've decades done. Decades and decades. Yeah, right. So it, it, it's, it's a little hard to explain. Um, it, first of all, most people don't understand that it's a full-time job. It's a really a 80-hour-a-week job. Um, there is a work product. What you read in the New England Journal of Medicine is, of course, the proprietary work of investigators who have original research that they want to project to the medical public and to change practice for the better, which is the mission of the journal. But every word that you read has been rewritten by one of the deputy editors virtually. It's an extremely critical journal, very high standards, and people depend on it for a good reason, because everything has been scrutinized, uh, scrubbed, often rewritten. So that's the end of the process for the deputy editors. There are six of us with subspecialty interests. Um, and along the way, there's a lot of other stuff. So just to give you an example, last year, the journal got 19,000 submissions, of which about 40 or 45% were original research. And we published 220 articles. So now a lot, we publish a lot of other things. Images, very popular, the most popular section of the journal. Residents send stuff in. Uh, perspectives, of course, editorials, and very important review articles, which undergo the same kind of scrutiny. But the the core uh, mission is these uh, original research articles, uh, the majority of which are big randomized trials that are meant to answer a singular question. Does removing amyloid with a drug improve Alzheimer's disease? Question, answered. Does thymectomy improve myasthenia gravis? Question, answered. And so on and so forth. Cardiology, and now of course, oncology, which is the current darling in these uh, PD-1 and PD-L1 uh, you know, cell cycle blockers. Fascinating. Everything is incremental, the very few revolutions. Uh, because uh, the ideas come first and the experiment, the trial comes second. But um, nevertheless, the corpus of it is the canon of medicine now, going back, you know, 200 years. The journal's 202 years old or three, 203 years old now. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Oncology right there makes me think of I had a past guest, Dr. Azra Raza from Columbia University, and she's had a lot of papers published across many fields. Is is oncology in its moment? What would you say has its current moment the most as far as fields in the paper? I would say right now, the resonant spot, despite the coronavirus, which the journal publishes um, oodles of articles on mm -hmm. very quickly. Right now, because of the huge jump in ability to prolong people's lives and their improve their quality of life, I think it's probably oncology. Yeah. And Dan Longo, our oncology editor who used to be at the NIH does a terrific job with them, but who knows what's next. It could be uh, the, the breakout uh, medical science could be psychiatry next because of everything that this book is about. I mean, if we keep plugging away and understand brain sciences, will we reframe the way we think about the mind and the sick mind? Right. I had a guest, David Sinclair from also Harvard Medical School, and he's anti-aging individual. And uh, it seems like a few anti-aging books have really popped up in our mind is the key, I think, in, in that view. Well, maybe. I mean, look, a lot of it ends up being marginal or bogus. I'm, I'm expressing my 
right. my, my skepticism, uh, you know, I mean, vitamin D out the door, fish oil out the door. You know, these are all people want control over their own destiny, mm-hmm. particularly as they age and they grab onto any kind of popular notion. Um, you know, uh, I, I would say something as rudimentary as you have to stay hydrated. What, what is that about? That's nonsense. <laughs> I mean, really, come on. I wasn't hydrated for 70 years. I'm, I'm fine. I haven't, turned, <laughs> I haven't turned into a prune yet. But, you know, even the vitamin industry, I hesitate to state, you know, has captured people's ideas. Oh, I need this supplement. I understand why. And the whole supplement market, you know, if you expose it to the cold, hard truth of a trial, which not everybody's interested in knowing, uh, it sort of falls away. But that's okay, because we've had these totems forever. People need them. Mm-hmm. I'm doing something to better myself. I, that's a good idea. Of course, stopping smoking is good. You know? Right. Yeah. Things in a certain direction. Yeah. One thing now, in the field of neurology, what are some of the main things you have done uh, or that come up from patients over the decades and what separates it from neurosurgery or other fields? Well, of course, um, there is a fairly clear distinction between neurology and neurosurgery, although they're dealing with the same organ. Mm-hmm. Uh, their jobs are a little different. Uh, and you, you're aware of the disorders that go into neurology. I mean, uh, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, dementia, neuromuscular diseases, to some extent, pain, stroke, of course, is number one numerically, and so on. The, the, the real question, and the question that this book sort of tries to answer, is what's the borderline between neurology and psychiatry? That's a really fascinating and tough one, and it, it may be a false border. Um, and yet what we've done is we delegated the talk therapies to people who are interested in the way the mind works, we call that psychiatry. And we've delegated the uh, organic disorders, structural disorders, even if they affect the mind, to neurology. Most of modern thinkers believe that that's a false dichotomy. I actually am not so sure in the sense that the book projects the idea that the mind is an emergent property of the brain. That is, you know, a lot of things are clicking, but it's not deterministic. You can't tell what the next thought's going to be. You will never be able to read people's minds, no matter how sophisticated brain scans are. And therefore, the mind has its own science that is respectable and worthy of investigation. That's Freud. I mean, you know, people have thrown Freud out for good reason, because of the doctrinaire way in which American psychiatry adapted it and uh, ran with it. And it had such an orthodoxy that it was offensive. But his fundamental idea was probably onto something. And in the painting that starts the book off, the famous painting by Brule, Charcot's Lessons, Freud attended those lessons and saw all those demonstrations of hysteria that Charcot for a long time thought were brain disorders and said, wrong, that's wrong. This is a mind disorder. I want to study it. And of course, that just launched, you know, psychiatry. So um, it's a very good question. Neurology, neurosurgery, 
I can make the distinction. Psychiatry and neurology, uh, maybe in terms of skill sets a little bit and intention, but in terms of trying to understand what's going on, probably more closely allied. They should be more closely allied than they are at the moment. Mm -hmm. Actually, speaking of psychiatry, when psychiatrists uh, provide a certain amount of medication to individuals based on a condition, how much do you think of it as like mechanical as far as solutions on that end and then mechanical yeah. in the neurological end? Well, of course, when you give a medication mm -hmm. for depression, say, and somebody gets better, it's inevitable that you'll reason backwards to say, oh, the depression was caused by uh, deficiency in excess of abnormality and control of a certain neurotransmitter. That's been consistently wrong. And Anne Harrington in her book, Mind Fixers, other excellent book, um, she's a medical historian at Harvard. She points out that these continued uh, excessive promises of psychiatry have gotten in its own way. So yes, there's obviously something about the way the brain functions that is aberrant in people who have what we call psychiatric diseases. You could first ask the question, what about the psychopathology of everyday life? Should everything be medicalized? Does it require a drug? That's, of course, a popular question that people struggle with. But I would submit that if you do a brain scan of a lot of depressed people and it shows certain patterns, which it does, it does, there's a belief that you're seeing depression. But if you do a brain scan on somebody whose dog has died and they're kind of down and blue, you see the same pattern. That's not a disease. So should we call everything a disease? And should we do the reductionist thinking that you alluded to mm -hmm. and say, well, if you give a drug and they're better, it means there was something wrong with the brain. Wrong with the brain? I don't know. We begin to get into semantics. I'm, a, I'm very worried about the over-medicalization of everyday life. And of course, it's easy for me to get on the bandwagon that you know, medications are over-prescribed, but I'd be out of, I'm not authoritative there, so I'd be out of my league. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, sometimes I think of the, do you think of the brain as like a system ready to go and then you give it stimulus and then it goes? Because that's sort of how I processed it. It does as much as it can if you took away some percentage of the brain, it still functions like after a stroke and it just processes as applicable as it can? Well, I think it does. Absolutely. What, what's, of, what's of interest is what, what's left. What does it do if, you know, once you damage it? Um, right. And, uh, you know, that's a question until recently that was for philosophers. I wrote an editorial for the New England Journal called Cogito Ergo Sum, you know, mm -hmm. which is... I think. Descartes, uh, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was in relation to this uh, spate of articles about uh, brain scans in unresponsive people mm -hmm. that demonstrated some degree of cognitive ability. So, for example, you took somebody who by bedside exam was unresponsive and you did these scans, you could show that if you asked them to play ping pong in their mind or tennis, you could see various areas of the brain lighting up. If you ask them to navigate 
their house after walking into the front door, you see the uh, non-dominant parietal region light up or dominant parietal region, sort of the internal, external map of the world. So, you know, what, what's, what's left of the human being after the brain is damaged is an essential question because it speaks to how to treat those people and it speaks to um, what personal responsibility is. You know, my brain made me do it. I'm a criminal. It's not me. My brain made me do it. Where does free will come in? Very touchy question. I think brain scientists, neurologists should be the ones to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. They have the basis for it. Now, actually, in your field, what is the most common condition people have come into you with? And also, separately, uh, I kind of want to focus on also syphilis. How did... How does syphilis, as described in the book, connect with the sexually transmitted disease that people think of? Well, first, the first question, I mean, for neurology, stroke is still numerically number one. It's still a big problem. Mm -hmm. There was a sea change with first intravenous thrombolysis and more recently with a group of articles showing that intraarterial thrombectomy uh, is uh, relatively effective. It's not a cure-all. So in that regard, neurology is always about 20 years behind cardiology, but it finally caught up. Um, the, the issue of syphilis is very interesting and very important. I'm reading now, I just happened to look at um, an article written by a colleague. I wrote a review in the New England Journal on neurosyphilis. Mm -hmm. And just a couple of weeks ago, um, Gainham, Ram, and Rice wrote a a review article called The Modern Epidemic of Syphilis. And they comment that the rates of syphilis in the U.S. have returned to levels um, that have not been seen in more than 20 years. And the number of cases has doubled from 2014 to 2018. So syphilis was thought to be almost extinct, but it's back and it's back with a vengeance. Mm. People would like to think it's only men who have sex with men and HIV-related, that's not the case. It's exploded in women. Mm -hmm. One of the tragedies of the new syphilis epidemic is that congenital syphilis is also on the rise. The numbers are actually astonishing. And so it's worth paying attention to. Um, I, I think it's currently still being ignored. It is a sexually transmitted disease, uh, but uh, it, it's all around us. I recently saw uh, a woman who went blind, a young woman, with headache and 30 cells in her spinal fluid and visual, com almost complete visual loss over six days turned out to be neurosyphilis or optic syphilis. Um, in my book, I recount at least one of the stories of a woman who, whose behavior changed, a woman who lives near the hospital, family found her bizarre. She began to have delusions. And of course, everybody says, oh, well, she's just demented, you know, elderly woman. Anyway, she had neurosyphilis, uh, had been undiagnosed for her whole life. So syphilis is back. We need to pay attention to it. It's a wicked disease. And one of the amazing things that is unique is that, as you know, uh, you get syphilis, and if it's not adequately treated, 10, 15, and 20 years later, you get demented. So nobody's going to think of it. Um, it's out there. And I think we're going to have a mini Epidemic, of course, the current epidemic that's captured everybody's coronavirus. Mm -hmm. When the when the dust clears from that, we'll be onto this these sexually transmitted diseases again. Mm. That makes sense. So that's how it connects to the neurological field 
Well, it causes, causes general paresis of the insane, which is a chronic infectious and inflammatory disorder of the meninges, and that affects the underlying cortex, cerebral cortex, and produces uh, GPI, or general paresis, which is an amazing disease because it can simulate almost any form of what we call mental illness. That's, what's, that's what struck me 40 years ago and you know, led to my interest in writing this book with my colleague, Brian Burrell. Mm-hmm. One thing that comes to mind is, around what age do neurological disorders start to ramp up heavily? Where's that? Well, you have, it's a great question. I mean, you've got epilepsy in children. It has a biphasic uh, appearance uh, epidemiologically. Uh, and of course, there are a lot of developmental disorders. By the way, um, aside from things like schizophrenia, which I think are one of the great unsolved medical problems of our, of our lives, um, developmental disorders really have been neglected. Uh, and are ubiquitous. And I'm not talking just about autism and autism spectrum disorder, but what we used to call mental retardation, it's now considered derogatory term, which Mm -hmm. I agree with. Um, So you have a lot of childhood diseases. In adolescence, uh, not much happens. In young adulthood, multiple sclerosis, and to some extent, myasthenia gravis in young women begin to appear. That's not a disorder of either children or late life. And then in later life, um, a stroke uh, becomes, uh, you know, preeminent. And in very late life or earlier, dementia. So neurological diseases do have a age distribution, but they are tricky, slippery. You got to be on your toes all the time and alert to the possibility of uh, any of these disorders. And furthermore, and then migraine. Migraine spans uh, the age spectrum. Uh, all the way down from, you know, maybe age seven to 10, certainly young adults, then it often becomes quiescent, then it reappears in mid and late adulthood. And curiously, in late adulthood, it manifests itself as TIAs, which is really interesting and misdiagnosed often. So people do a big mega workup uh, and uh, don't find anything and neglect to ask the patient, uh, tell me about your headache history from when you were younger. And it emerges that uh, you know migraine can produce something that is indistinguishable from a conventional uh, cerebrovascular TIA. Mm-hmm. And everything in between. Look, there's, the, you know what's interesting about neurology? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just gonna choose one medical specialty. There are more diseases of muscle, which is one branch of neurology, than all pulmonary diseases put together. There are more diseases of the spinal cord than all renal diseases put together. And neurology is comprised of 14 of those segmented subspecialties. It's vast. And obviously the nervous system has a limited number of ways it can manifest damage. So people don't come into the doctor and say, oh, I have SCA uh, seven, spino, you know, spinocerebellar atrophy, type seven. They come in and say, I'm falling. <laughs> right. And then you got to figure it out. That's the challenge. That's, that's why I called neurology the queen of the medical specialties in my first book, uh, the Rad Down the Rabbit Hole. That makes sense. Pretty cool, isn't it? Yes, you have to work backwards completely because I'm falling yes. tells you almost yeah. Right. Which is what patients come in with. My memory's bad. Oh, really? Are you depressed? 
Are you taking medications? Are you getting demented? Um, my hand is weak. Well, that could be a glioblastoma, or it could be uh, that you leaned on your radial nerve, you know, when you slept. And um, that's the skill set. There's nothing that's going to replace, in my view, the synthetic ability of the clinician. Uh, the majority of neurologic problems I see have normal MRIs. It's like a complete reverse engineering. Right. Which means you have to understand how the nervous system works mm -hmm. in great detail. One specific that came to mind right there talking about stroke and the ages. I know somebody who currently, like this is very current, is going to have a surgery for, they have Moya Moya. And oh yeah, amazing disease. Mm -hmm. uh, on this specific one, what experience have you had with that or related uh, disorders that affect the blood vessels to the brain? What have you seen in that category? Well, Moya Moya is a very curious business. Um, sort of this unexplained blockage progressive of the middle cerebral artery and sometimes other arteries just at and distal to the circle of Willis and uh, collaterals form, which give it its name. Moya Moya, I think is supposed to mean puff of smoke in Japanese, although I've heard it doesn't, so I don't really know where the name comes from. Right. So my, my acquaintance with it is that Mike Scott, uh, recently retired um, chairman of neurosurgery at Children's Hospital, which I'm looking at out my window and is just behind the Brigham. Mm. Uh, and his colleagues operate on these people to try to either bypass the blockage with a superficial temporal artery to middle cerebral, bypass very delicate vascular surgery on the brain, uh, or take a piece of omentum from the abdomen and plaster it onto the uh, cortical surface and wait for new vessels to grow in from it. But it's a rare disease. Um, it's overrepresented in individuals who have Down syndrome, which is interesting. Nobody understands why. Mm. Um, and there is probably an acquired form that's atherosclerotic or maybe related to Takayasu aortic arteritis. It's a rare disease, but it's one of the People present with TIAs, headaches, sometimes cerebral hemorrhage. Um, it's one of the rarest forms of stroke, which is still the big ticket item uh, in clinical work in neurology. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I visited that individual at the floor, and she's in her 30s. So compared to the rest of the people on the floor, they're all older. And then I think it's uh, less common that a stroke or related to that would happen around that age. But it's a specific condition that's rare. Yes, it is rare. It's fascinating. Nobody quite understands it. As far as I know, it does not have a known genetic basis, but there's something in there because of the propensity of down uh, people to uh, acquire it. Mm -hmm. How often is it that a disorder or something like that, the actual root cause is found? Is that not common or is it an occasional discovery that this because this, this receptor or something? Well, it depends on how far back you want to go. But currently in neurology, the majority of disorders do not have an essential cause, mm -hmm. by which I mean multiple sclerosis. Yes, the, the symptoms are due to demyelination and other types of damage, which can either be inflammatory or in some cases purely humoral, mostly inflammatory and demyelinating. But why? What's the underlying immune, if that's the cause? Uh, you know, root cause, not known. Um, and that could be said for virtually everything. Even 
the epilepsies in children, many of which have genetic markers, in other words, they're, you could say this marker goes with this type of epilepsy. How does that marker produce the epilepsy? In a few instances, we know sodium channel disorders. If you move over to psychiatry, you take something like schizophrenia, uh, you know, schizophrenia is a graveyard of theories. Everybody had a theory. It's a graveyard even for neuropathologic investigation. But we don't know what causes it. And it's led some people to say it's not a disease. So in the book, we devote a chapter to Thomas Zaz, who's a prominent gadfly from Syracuse, who wrote a blockbuster book called The Myth of Mental Illness. He said, if you, to be a disease, the organ has to have something wrong with it that you can identify. And because he took schizophrenia because it was provocative. Um, you can't identify what causes this. It's not a disease. It's a fabrication of psychiatry. Now, that may be an exaggeration. Not too many people believe that. But he was onto something important. Take something else that we spend the chapter on the, uh, in on the book, Tourette syndrome. Mm-hmm. Now, everything about it is neurological. Although, by the way, for a long time, the psychoanalysts thought that it was repressed sexual energy and so on and so forth, uh, which is probably nonsense. But here's a disease or a disorder. I'll call it a disorder because a disease should have a cause uh, in which people have utterances, flinging movements, uh, obsessive compulsive behaviors. I mean, that's got to be a disorder of the brain. But we don't have a clue what's wrong with the brain in that. A clue. We say that, well, if you give certain dis- drugs like Haldol, going back to your question about psychiatric drugs, mm-hmm. you know, the movements are suppressed to some degree. Therefore, the dopaminergic system must be involved. Well, that's not an explanation. That's just some intermediary, you know? So what is a disease? Is schizophrenia a disease? Yeah, of course it's got to be. Has it some genetic loading? Not a lot, but it does. Uh, is Tourette's a disease? Well, it's got to be a brain disease, but it's better if we call it a disorder because for the majority of these things, we don't know the etiology. Whereas syphilis, yeah, I can show you the spirochete under the microscope. There it is. I can show you the damaged neurons right under it. Closed loop disease, even though it causes mental disorders. That's how it manifests itself. So that's what the book is about. That's what's fascinating. We're constantly taking our own mental temperature. We're also constantly persuaded something's wrong. <laughs> it's a curious, curious thing, right? right? Is that right? We're always looking for, yeah. you know, I don't know, what's, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with me? Why do I need a therapist? Well, I don't know. Is that a brain problem or is that a mind problem? It's true. We sometimes look at the functional nature of something. If it's working, then it's probably good. If it's not working. Yeah, that's true too. Of course, medicine works like that, right? It doesn't mind, didn't mind using penicillin before people understood what it did. That's true. Also, uh, uh, mercury, I believe was mentioned. Yeah, well, there's a lot in that. I don't think mercury actually worked, but uh, it's open to question. Or fever therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, Weiner Jaureg, who was apparently a Nazi, uh, won the Nobel Prize for fever therapy to treat neurosyphilis, right? Does it work? I don't know. <laughs> right. It's always a constant 
It's a yeah, we, we're, we're not going to go back and test it. Right. That's not a thing. Now, one thing I wanted to go back to that I didn't include, but uh, wh why was the title of the brain actually called, uh, title of the book, title of the brain, classic, uh, title of the book called How the Brain Lost Its Mind. What's the main distinction you try to present there? Okay, it's a play on um, Leon Eisenberg, the prominent uh, Harvard psychologist who commented many years ago that psychiatry at one time was um, brainless. In other words, it was all about the mind, psychoanalysis, and uh, you know how the mind works and all these mechanistic ideas, which are mainly fabrications. But he said it was in the modern era at risk of becoming brainless, uh, mindless, sorry. So <laughs> that we're we're always, yeah, there it is. That's a Freudian <laughs> slip. Yeah. Armin, you know what a Freudian slip yeah, is? Yeah, uh -huh. No, it's when you say one thing and you mean your mother. <laughs> <laughs> um, so no, that he said it, that psychiatry in the modern era of psychopharmaceuticals was at risk of becoming mindless. That is, everybody assumed that you could reason back to brain function. And that's, and you just had to treat the right neurotransmitter system and you would fix people up. That ends up, of course, being a false god. So it's a play on that. Um, I think that neurology and psychiatry maybe has lost its way a little bit because modern neuroscience really thinks in a reductionist way that if you understand everything about the brain, you would understand the mind. And um, a number of people including Hewlings Jackson, a famous neurologist who described sequential movement of epilepsy, uh, by the way, and his wife, uh, who was his second cousin. Oh. Um, you know, he said that he, he used this term emergent property, that, the, that of course the brain is a platform for the mind, but then it sort of works by its own rules. So I, the, the title of the book is meant to evince the idea that um, the brain uh, lost its mind because of neurosyphilis as the first big psychiatric disorder. We need to get back to understanding the mind. And that's a paradoxical thing for a neurologist to say, right? Because I'm supposed to make everything about the brain. Right. It kind of reminds me, uh, Michael Graziano, I once had him on, he talked about rethinking consciousness and he talked about the brain basis of consciousness. It's sort of emerging attention. Yeah. I, the, the issue of consciousness is much more complex and I, tried very hard not to get tangled up in it mm -hmm. in the book because you don't have to take it there to really uh, understand the history of our ideas about the mind and its relation to brain and why we landed where we are now with this psychopharmacology craze. That makes sense. One thing that comes to mind, I look at a lot of different scientists. Who are some of the scientists or researchers that you look to or read from? Obviously, you read a lot of people's papers, so more than most. But is there any specific people that come to mind or a field you like to specifically look at? Thanks mind? for asking. I'll tell you. One of the most original thinkers of the 20th, late 20th century in neurology, talk about neurology right now, um, highly underappreciated because he was so quirky and idiosyncratic is C. Miller Fisher, hmm. who wrote a number of um, casual articles. He was, of course, one of the people who advanced the neurology of stroke immensely by his pathologic studies, careful clinical observation. Um, he wrote things um, uh, on free will, 
um, and you know, on mind, on pain, uh, on thinking, and ask the question whether introspection is a, an appropriate or valuable way to think about the brain and the mind. That is to think about what's happening in your own mind. And so I just find him fascinating. He's been lost uh, as a writer. He was brilliant, but um, considered a little nutty in modern terms. Um, you know, so I, I, he's one of the people I read that I would point out to medical readers. And then I read all this consciousness stuff. I think Damasio's book, Descartes' Error, things like that, I've learned a lot from, uh, utterly fascinating. There are other people I found a little disconnected, but, you know, that's personal preference. Right. One thing I like to do usually is uh, taking into account the material in your book and or what you have done. What is the message you wanna you would want to let all people know about something you represent or what you would want them to know about your field or the mind? Uh, well, uh, with regard to the book, I'd, I'd like to suggest that neurosyphilis, syphilis of the brain in particular, general paresis, set us on a course of thinking that every mental disorder will be explained in a similar way by a fundamental problem in the brain. Uh, that may or may not be true. It's a very unpopular stance, but I'm just asking people to think about it. And at the same time to think about the margins of uh, you know, what, we, what we experience in everyday life and where the line is between that and true mental illness. It's something we have not been able to establish. In terms of medicine in general, I'd say that if you wanna have a great ride in your professional career, consider neurology. It's of course exploding now in a recent neuroscience way. Um, and finally, you know, what I, you, you were kind enough to bring out earlier, uh, I don't believe in luck, not waiting for luck to strike, but I really am a little bit tired of everybody being in love with their own autobiography and thinking that, you know, they did it. There's so many things along the way you can't predict. So you got to enjoy the ride. That's a very valid point. Take into account all the details that brought you to where you are currently. That's wonderful. I would like to thank you for having been on this wonderful episode of the show. Thanks so much, Armin. I really appreciate it and uh, good luck. Thank you. And we are out. 